How does God view you personally? As he scans your heart, what's his vantage point about what's going on in your heart? You know, we frequently talk about having the right perspective of Scripture and God's mysterious ways. But what's his perspective of you and of me? As we look into the chapter of Romans 8 today, you're going to be quite surprised about what he feels and says about you and what work he's cutting into your life. He wants us to see him this way. Last week, Pastor Travis, teaching out of the book of Genesis on the life of Abraham, had some pretty profound things to share with us about sin, the impact of sin, the habitual way we can find ourselves embracing, embracing sin, and the consequences. And he talked a bit about how, how the Lord helps us work through it. Today, I want to talk about the other side of that particular coin, which has to do with how the Lord works out affliction and failure in our life. If there was ever a poem or a love song God would write about us, we would find it in Romans chapter 8. Especially verse 31 through 39, which we'll spend most of our time with. So why don't you turn there? Romans 8. In a moment, we'll lightly touch verse 17 and onward, and we'll get more into verse 31 through 39. The title of the message is God is for you. God is for you. He's for us. Paul makes that very clear and gives several examples. Can't wait to talk about it. How God is for you and I. Romans 8 the entire book of Romans, is written to the Christians in Rome. The book is punctuated with hope. These particular verses have to do with the Roman citizens who are actually, as Pastor Rick would call them, expats. Because they, you and I, are patriots and citizens of heaven. You do know that that's your real home. That's where we're going. There's no hope, there's no if, there's no I hope I will get there. There's none of that. Not when you're in Christ. His grip of grace will never let you go. 
I ran into a teenager one time, and he was raised in the church, and he's going through a season of rebellion. And he said, I choose to no longer be a Christian. I said, you can't de-Christianize yourself. What are you talking about? Because if you are truly in Christ, he will never let you go. Even if you want to. It's like you're stuck now. So Paul writes to the Romans because he knows that in the coming years, they're going to go through horrific persecution, torture. He talks about it here. Peril, poverty, anything that you can imagine that would be so violating to you that it would leave you without words. And so he thought, I have to give God's people hope. Have to. I have to write a song in Romans 8 about how God sees his people. So the Romans there, the newer believers in Rome, that's why it's the book to the Romans, book of Romans, We're living in quite the hotbed of carnality. I mean, that is the imperial city of the world. Caesar was the king, not the Lord Jesus. Caesar was the king. And he ruled the world with an iron fist. No one ever dare not bow their knee to Caesar. Ever. And so he writes to these believers. I've been at Rome a few times. If you ever go to Rome, which I recommend you put it at number one on your bucket list, you must visit the catacombs which are deep tunnels, a myriad of tunnels dug 20 feet under the pavement of Rome, where the Christians were forced to flee to hide for their lives and to lock arms with one another in fellowship by candlelight. It wasn't long after he wrote this book that we read that Nero, then the Caesar, who was a crazed despot, set Rome on fire, about 64 AD. Burned it, a lot of it. And then he blamed this new sect 
called the people of the way. That was the first name for the Christians, the people of the way. And he blamed them for burning it, and that is when persecution really took off. And Paul might not have known the details and the specifics, obviously. But many of the Christians fled underground. And if you go to the catacombs today, which you can do, you see the fish symbol etched on the wall, like some of those have bumper stickers on their car. You know, remember that was more like in the 80s. Don't put one on unless you obey the traffic laws, okay? That's a bad testimony. And they had carvings of bread and carvings of what the cross of Calvary would have looked like. and Amazing. And they would gather down there. There was tunnels everywhere, but then there were certain kind of like um, cross sections where there was a larger room and they would worship like we did today. And when they would take to the Lord's table together. You still go there and see that. This is not a fable for any of you that are uh, so linear and logical and scientific that if it, it's not in a science book, it didn't happen. This is history. And if you don't believe me, look up the name Josephus. He was the historian at those times. And he was not a follower of a Christ. He was Jew, but he was not a follower of a Christ. And he writes about these events. It's history. You with me? In that area, near downtown Rome, and you can still go to it, there was a huge field. It's called Circus Maximus probably three football fields of open ground. And after Nero set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians and persecution had its inception there, uh, these believers were not afraid of the sword. They were not afraid of the cross. They weren't even afraid of the oil that was thrown on them and when they were set on fire. Because as long as they could, they worshipped until their last breath. Drove the Caesar mad to think there was another king of such worthied praise. That's the background. In Rome. This sounds like my mic's gone. No, it's back. Fifty years later, talks about not only the persecution, but how vile and inhumane was the mockery hurled at them during their suffering. 
So Paul intuitively knows this. And he writes these words in Romans chapter 8. Now I briefly, if you look at verse 17, I briefly want to uh, just pass over verse 17 through 30. And then we'll get into the meat of verse 31 through 39. Paul highlights the suffering of God's people in this chapter. But all through it are beams and rays of hope and assurance. Look at verse 17. He kind of starts it here. I consider, Paul says, that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, it's a state of comparison. The intensity and the overcoming weight of pain will never stand up in comparison to the joy, the glory, the paradise that God has prepared for those who love them. So Paul says, you you have to look a little bit past the pain into the future, which last forever. Simple math. 60 years here? Forever. Now, the Paul's, not, Paul's not being insensitive, you know, as you'll see. But he's saying with eyes of faith, we must not get caught in the fiery trial without remember, without remembering what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Jump down to uh, verse 26. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us, now he's talking about afflictions and what we're going through. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself, Holy Spirit within us, himself intercedes, prays for us with groanings too deep. For words. And he who searches the hearts, God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and because the Spirit, Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what he's saying is, all of us have been in a place in our life. We love the Lord. We want to learn how to pray more. 
We'll never go back to our old life. It's like, are you kidding? Like the pig goes back to the mud and the dog goes back to the vomit? Are you kidding? That's not even an issue. But there are those moments when life is so overwhelming that we don't have any words. We don't even know where to begin in prayer. And it's in those darkest hours. We don't even have to worry about God's will or Him knowing our needs because the Holy Spirit does and He translates it to the Father who already sees our heart according to to God's will. And then, of course, we can't skip over verse 28 through 30. Verse 28 is, a lot of us in here have like life verses and passages. This is my life verse, Romans eight twenty-eight. It was quoted to me the day, hours before I gave my life to Christ, 46 years ago. How could I forget? Verse 28, Paul's talking about their suffering now. And we know, not we hope, not we think, not perhaps, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose, not some things, not, Lord, you don't understand what I've been through, things, all things. Everything that comes our way, difficult, joyous, blessed, Loss, all of those things. I think we must understand that they are filtered, everything that happens in our life. I mean, if he's sovereign over all, right? Yeah. Everything, this is for the child of God only. Everything that happens to us, everything is filtered through his hands first, and some of that's hard to understand. And by the time it goes through his hands, it becomes a part of being called according to his purpose. Look at the next verses. For those whom he foreknew, he knew us before we were born, He also predestined, you can ask Rick about that, to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is what he's saying. When we read that in our harshest times of life, God's going to somehow weave that. into who we are and what he wants for us. 
That's what he does. He's not unaware. All things work together for good to them who love God, who those who are called according to purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I left out the best verse. To be conformed in the image of his son. The good that he's talking about is not that you balance your checkbook. Or everything is resolved on your online account. That's not the good he's talking about. The good that he's talking about is not necessarily that he will heal you you of cancer. Or get you reconciled to your spouse. Although all of that's wonderful. When we read that the Lord works everything out in our life, the harshest times of our life for good, the good is that he conforms us and shapes us and model us through those circumstances to look like Christ. That's it. So don't blame God if your account's not balanced. That's the good he's after. You say, why have you allowed this to happen to me, Lord? Because I'm going to work the love of Christ into you so well. And you'll look back and praise me for it. Okay, those are just three beams out of the first section regarding how he shows up through our misfortune and our grief. Now let's get to his song of love that he has for us. Turn to verse 31. What then, Paul says, shall we say of these things? Since all of our afflictions, filtered by the sovereign hands of God, are only momentary in nature and are outweighed by his glory, and since in those times where we could hardly breathe and form words because of our confusion over the trial, the Holy Spirit prays for us on our behalf, And since we find out that all of the misfortunes and all of the ill and all of the rejection and all of the hate we've had toward us in our life, God has turned it for his glory that we would be conformed to Jesus and all things work together for good. Since we see all of that, then Paul says, okay, now since we have that information... What then shall we say of these things? What shall we say today of the trials we're going through? What should we say of them? Here we go again. What's God's perspective? If God is for us, who can be against us? Did I already tell you that the title of the message is God is for you? Yes, I did. God is for us. Four words. Four words. God is for us. God is for you. 
He's for you. You go, that's really hard to believe because nobody's ever been for me. Well, this is the first time. God is for you. He didn't say God may be for you or God would if he could be for you or God was for you. I look at the face of my children because they belong to me and I'm their father. And I have and will and will always from a parental standpoint be for them. He's the front row, the front seat in the front row at our performance in life. We have six granddaughters now. You know grandsons yet. And uh, that's a lot of love and a lot of conversation. Um, and my second oldest, when she was four, her name's Eliana, um, she was having a Christmas play. And, uh, you know, her parents, obviously, here we go, fixated on her little daughter, making sure she's behaving herself and staying still. And, and Eliana saw them. And she went. <laughs> That's what God does to us. I had a Bible college professor who was talking about the love of Christ, the love of God, and he said, uh, you know, as parents, when you're firstborn, especially when your firstborn's born, and, you know, the crib was already set up and everything was laid out months in advance, depending on how perfectionistic you are, but it's laid out. And how you would stand there with that crib? I did. Couldn't take my eyes off them. They were sleeping. He said, and God never takes his eyes off you either. Why? Because he's for you. Kevin Lehman, he's on the Dove. If you watch the Dove radio and TV, uh, he's hilarious. He's written over 40 books. He's a psychologist. And he's a cut-up. He's a class clown, like I used to be. Similar temperaments. And uh, he said... When he entered in the first day of sixth grade, he knew he was going to be in trouble because the fifth grade was hell on wheels for him. His choice. So he walks in, and it's the first day, and he said it was, it was a, a female teacher, a woman, and she was about six foot tall. And she said to him, Are you Kevin Lehman? He goes, Yes. She said, Kevin, I've heard all about you, and I don't believe a word of it. That is God for us. He then said, I broke my back for that teacher because she believed in me. We must metaphorically 
break our back for the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And I'm not talking about work. I'm just talking about getting it. That he's for us. Uh, turn just for a moment. I have a passage you may not forget. This is Isaiah chapter 49. Another way of saying this. Uh, verse 15. Did I say Isaiah? Isaiah 49 verse 15. This one will get to you moms. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Hypothetical question. Don't call for answers. We know the answer. Not possible. But some do, as we know. Some moms do. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on her son, even though they may forget? Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. Engraved. Our name. Our face. On the palm of his hands. So like two young lovers... Who are walking through the woods, find a tree to carve their name on because they know there will never be anyone else. So, for an example, he says, I have cut you into my skin to prove to you. That's interesting. The Lord was also lacerated to prove to you and I that he would never forget us. Ever. This is our standing, folks. If you're a believer, this is our standing. Try to push him away if you will. Not going to happen. Then Paul says, so if God is for us, like who can be against us? If God is really for you, it doesn't matter who is against you. As long as we have his approval, what else matters? Although you have to know, as one of the pastoral counselors here, I've met many an adult in my day, loving, loving, godly people who never had the approval of a parent 
and in their 50s, and dare I even say 60s, are still trying to get it. I would say, if you don't have it by then, stop trying and learn to come under God's approval because ultimately that's enough. Seriously. If I hadn't talked to the woman myself, a woman in her 60s, actually, a godly woman, I would have thought that it was a fairy tale, her story. She said, when I graduated from high school, I really wanted to go to college. I had saved some money. I had tried to get some jobs in high school to save because my number one dream was I wanted to go to college and make something of myself. But when I approached my father and told him I had on my own saved some funds to help so I could go to college, he said, college? Why would you want to go to college? College isn't necessary, and you don't belong there. Oh, Daddy, please. Please, Daddy. No, you're going to work here. You don't need to be in college. So I'm talking to her, and she's now 60, and she's sitting in my office here at Trail. And she told me of that story and how she really couldn't get past her father being against her. Paul said, who shall be against you? And so she always had something to prove. I'm going to college someday. And she finally did. In her early 60s, she went to our local college here. And it was maybe a two-year course. She said, I'm going to do it. I said, God wants you to do it. God's going to make a point in your life. And it was graduation day. And she got a notice um, prior to the graduation that they were going to do something a little unusual. She was going to get a cap and she was going to get a gown. And they were going to put on her a golden sash. To wear. She walked down that aisle with God's approval. That means God is for us. And it doesn't matter who's against us if we have His approval. Look at verse 32. This is a very theological twist Paul throws in, verse 32. He's trying to convince these heartbroken people what God thinks of them and is doing for them and how he views them. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, he's talking about the cross, Calvary. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not so with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God the Father cross to bear our sins, there is no greater gift than that, so why would he not meet our needs now? Imagine this. A boy is being beaten in the neighborhood by thugs. A passerby, a man, runs in to rescue him, finds out that he's an orphan, adopts him as his son, brings him into his heart and his home, provides his needs educationally. He has given everything that he is to his boy. And one night, he hears his son crying in his pillow. He goes over, and he said, Son, what's wrong? Dad, I'm worried. I'm worried I will have food to eat someday. I'm worried that I'll have clothes to wear. Well, you could see why he would have that kind of flashback. I'm worried if I'll always have a warm place to live, and I'm worried if you'll ever leave me. The father, equally troubled for different reasons, says, son, I risked my life for you. What's mine is yours. I adopted you as my son. I have given you my name. I am here for you. I am for you. Son, would I do all of that and ever stop and not have your other needs in my heart? God is for us, and yet, yet, we worry about the election, we worry about the recession, and we worry about rejection. And we're told that God is for us. I like Max Lucado. He put it this way. Did God save us so that we would worry? Would he teach us how to walk just to watch us fall? Would he allow his son to be nailed to a cross and disregard our prayers? His loyalty, listen to this, his loyalty to us won't increase if we become better nor lessen if we become worse. He is for us. Verse 33, he then asks another question. By the way, the first question, who shall be against you? Hypothetical, no answer, it's obvious. Nobody. 
that matters. Who shall bring any charge or accusation or condemnation against God's elect? Elect means the people that he chose. Who he carved in his hand? Those people. Who Christ died for? Those people. That's the elect. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? Nobody. Why? Because it's God that justifies and Christ died on the cross. Just flash with your eye quickly to Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. None. Did you realize that God does not punish his people? Why? Because he took our punishment for us on the cross. He disciplines us. There's consequences to our blatant sin. Not punishment. And not unending guilt. Ever. Some of us are our own worst enemies on that. Who is it to contemn? Christ Jesus is the only one that can judge you and condemn you, and he died for you. There is now no condemnation. Because he took it. The enemy of our soul is a slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren. The word is diablos, Satan. Did you know that there's no higher objective that he has than to bring accusations and charges against God's people? And so he slithers himself, this is even in the scripture, back and forth before the throne of God and he questions the king of kings as to why his subject doesn't pray more or read more or give more or the horrific, vile thought they had that night, last night. And he spews that venom, sulfur rises. God says the price is paid. There is now no condemnation through my son. Now it's very important. You've got to know that I am not the type of pastor that sees the devil under every rock. A lot of Christians talk too much about the devil. Don't like it. It's not even to talk that much about him. Uh, C.S. Lewis said the two biggest mistakes that we as believers make regarding Satan is we either give him too much credit or we ignore him. We need a balance. The balance is he's the enemy of our soul and he lives to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said that himself. We need to be aware of him, especially when it comes to guilt. I read of a story one time called Remember the Duck. Uh, Grandma had uh, her two grandchildren, grandson, granddaughter, over for the weekend, and she had a pond on a farm. 
And her grandson loved slingshots. And so he kept trying to see how accurate he was becoming. And uh, when he looked around and saw that no one apparently was looking, he, he hit one of her ducks in the pond and killed it instantly. His sister saw, though, his lovely sister, the household informant, we all have them. And uh, so at dinner that night, they used to take turns doing the dishes. And at dinner that night, it was his turn. And uh, when she said, okay, honey, get up and let's uh, clean the table, do the dishes. Uh, or she, he said it to her. It's your turn, honey, to do the dishes. She walked by him and said, remember the duck. <laughs> he said, that's okay, Grandma. I got it. Gets up, do the dishes. This went on for a week or two. And the, son, the, the, the grandson finally said, look, I would rather pick up rocks and do the dishes the rest of my life than to live under the guilt of my sin, sister one more day. So he went to the grandmother and he goes, Grandma, I have a confession to make. I took out a stone and I killed one of your ducks. She goes, I know, grandson. I saw it. I was standing at the window and I saw it. I was wondering when you were going to tell me. You know, when we sin, we're convicted, but the Lord doesn't throw it in our face. And he just wonders when we're going to tell him. There's no guilt, there's no condemnation. Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. And then the last part of the song, verse 35. Another who. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, by the way, uh, this list here, Paul has gone through most of them already. Six years after this is written, he's going to lose his head. It's going to be chopped off. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... Then he quotes Psalms 44, which explains that we all suffer, that we can't, we cannot separate ourselves from suffering. We can't separate ourselves from his love, but we can't separate ourselves from suffering either. It's part of the Christian life. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. And then he says, no, and all these things, we are more than conquerors. There, the commentators are having a hard time finding a definition for this. I mean, it's, it's like they're saying it's not enough just to be the conqueror and win the battle. You are even more than that. Because we have God's favor, perhaps. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... This is probably why they sang on the cross too. 
in Rome, they were sure that death would not separate them from the love of Christ. But they were moments away of waking up in his presence. For I am sure, I'm sure about this. We know that we know. If we have Christ, we're going to heaven. We know that we know. If you're not sure, come talk to me. I am sure that neither life or death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no wedge in this world. There was no pain. There is no misfortune. There is no loss. There is no sin. that will ever pull us out of his hands. Christ Jesus, our Lord. I close with this thought. My youngest son, Joe, was about four, and we were in Oahu. And, of course, for those of you that know Hawaii in the in. The North Shore is very famous for surfing. It's more famous now in the winter months. But, but the riptide's pretty strong. The pool is there. And so I had my son's hand, and I, I've always wanted to run around on the beach, and I pretend, pretend like the waves are chasing us, and they just loved it. And so I had his hand. And I'm telling you, folks, water this deep. Literally, I held on to my son. Literally lifted him up. As if it wanted to consume him. And the more it lifted him up, the tighter my grip got. Is that a boy ever going to come out of my hand? Would your child ever come out of yours? Then why do we think we'll ever come out of his grip of grace? Not possible. Not a wayward son will take you from his grace. Not a pending divorce, loss of job, rejection of family, failing house, so on and so on and so on. You cannot be split off from his love because he's for us. Uh, we're going to have Demian come. Be the, the last song we sang was an older course. Jesus, lover of my soul. It's not, it's not theologically correct, actually. It goes something like this. Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus, what's the next part, Damien? I will never let you go. That's the part that's not theologically correct. It's not about our grip on him. It's about, according to this love song, his grip on us, and he will never let us go. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you for that hope and that promise. Though our world may fall, you will never let us go. Praise your name, Lord. We love you today. In your name, amen.